Hey there, and welcome. This is the Skins Podcast, produced by the Facade Tectonics Institute. With invited industry thought leaders, we take on all things building skin. People, give me just a few seconds here. I want to talk about Shuko USA, our sponsor for this episode of the Skins Podcast the door window and facade system provider of Shuko products here in North America, featuring German engineering made in America. Operating Shuko doors and windows is like operating a high-performance German automobile. Quite satisfying. Shuko's diverse window, door, and facade systems not only provide best-in-class thermal and acoustical performance, but are tested and certified in accordance with AMA, NFRC, ADA, UL, and Miami-Dade hurricane standards. With literally unbeatable thermal and acoustical performance, they even have window systems that meet demanding passive house standards. Check out a Shuko thermal break sometime and compare it with the competition. Their network of trained and certified glazing contractors ensures that their systems are properly installed, commissioned, and serviced. If you design or specify facade systems and components, you need to know Shuko. This is Mick Patterson with the Facade Tectonics Institute, and we are excited to have with us today Ted Kessick from Toronto, the University of Toronto professor, School of Architecture. I stumbled across Ted's work doing, uh, doing research on curtain wall for a late career PhD, uh, and specifically his work on durability, uh, and it changed everything for me. My in- entire perspective on building facade technology and how we are doing with respect to resilience and sustainability goals and buildings and urban habitat, uh, it was it was profound. The most influential uh, researcher that I came across in doing my work. So you know, it's it's great to have you here, Ted. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Well, it's wonderful to be here, and thank you for your kind words. I just thought, you know, before we got into things that maybe for some of the people listening that perhaps they really don't know much about me. So I thought I'd just give people a bit of a background and and sort of position myself in, in the discussions that we're going to be having. I um, was one of those people who was involved in the construction industry. I guess I entered the construction industry back in, uh, I hate to say this, 1974. That kind of dates me. But anyway... <laughs> I uh, did that way back when and got really in, in interested in, in construction and then uh, decided that I would go back to university. And that's when my academic career started. I went back to university. I studied civil engineering. And uh, then uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to go and check out building science as a grad degree because it's a really hot upcoming area. And I did love buildings. And quite frankly, I didn't have the guts to become an architect because that's a really tough profession. And, and you really got to have the passion and the guts for that. So I said, I'll play it safe. I'll stay within the engineering, but I'll get into building science. And ended up at the University of Toronto doing grad studies there for my master's and PhD. And then got involved in a consulting firm and eventually got involved in teaching. And so it's been a balance of uh, professional practice and research and teaching um, that has led me along the way through through a whole bunch of twists and turns just because of how the world unfolded. So, it, you know, the, in the old days, it was all about energy efficiency because there was, you know, an energy crisis that had come up in the 70s. And I was a grad student in the early 80s and up, up until the, the, the late 80s, early 90s. So that's what we were up to. Then uh, people realized that, hey, it's not just about energy. It's about things like greenhouse gases 
And then people started looking at other issues like resource depletion and, and you know, reductions in biodiversity due to some of the envir- environmental impacts of buildings. And so things just kept rolling along and the research kept going. And I had to keep updating the stuff that I was teaching in building science to my architecture students. And so there was really no getting off of this uh, roller coaster, if you want to call it that. And that roller coaster has brought me to today. So I'm here today having this uh, this uh, discussion about like what's happening now. So um, I didn't know if you wanted me to talk a bit about what's happening now with me and some of the areas I'm yes, working on. Yes, please do. Let us know what you're up to right now. Very interested in that. Well, recently, not that, that long ago, but I'd say in the last five years, I spent a lot of time uh, looking really at resilience. And, and the reason I was looking at that was because we were getting to the point where whenever some bad thing happened in terms of an extreme weather event, like let's say a major power failure during an extended winter storm and the weather would be cold. And and that actually happened in Toronto back in 2013. And we got knocked out of power for about four or five days in late December. You know, we, everyone then came to realize, wow, our buildings are pretty fragile. Like we pay a lot of money for these buildings just because the real estate prices are high, but they don't give you a lot of thermal resilience at all. Like you, you, your passive survivability is awfully low. And so that was one thing. And, and at the same time, the reason I was became interested in it was because, you know, we, we thought, okay, so how do you model thermal resilience? Well, what you do is you, you model it when I was doing a lot of energy modeling. I've been energy modeling since uh, I think 1986. So you, you, you basically just have zero capacity for all of your active systems and you just let your, your, your building go into what they call a free running mode and uh, you get to see how it behaves. And of course you get to see uh, its temperature drop and all that kind of stuff because there is no heating or cooling or anything going on in the building. It's just the building passively sitting there and you're watching what's going on. And then I realized that this was actually a great way to do building design for energy efficiency and low carbon as well, because what happens is it takes about 90% of the time when you're building an energy model to model all of the HVAC systems and the lighting and all this kind of stuff. And yet when the rubber hits the road, you discover that it's your passive systems that have to do all the heavy lifting and your active systems aren't even online. So why would you even bother uh, modeling all of this stuff when you're at the very uh, you know, early stages of design, what you want to get right is your passive systems because they're the thing that you're that are always going to work for you. So when I when I teach that to my students, I tell them, I don't think any of us would ever imagine going into a building that only has an elevator and no stairs. I said stairs are the passive vertical circulation systems and the elevator is the active system. I said, but no one in their right mind would ever set themselves up to be stuck up in a building if the elevator doesn't work and there's no stairs to get the hell out. So that was a big motivator and I did a lot of work and and ended up coming up with some thermal resilience design guidelines and, and also looking at resilience more generally. And then along with that really got wrapped up in the whole business of then the carbon arguments and and uh, mass timber. So next thing you knew, I we were involved with this thing at the U of T called the Mass Timber Institute, and uh, I got involved in that just because I was really interested to see not only how much we could 
make buildings better in terms of their performance, their thermal resilience, their uh, low carbon footprint, but also looking at in terms of their embodied carbon, how low you could go and, and, and how you could actually get a renewable resource to do stuff that we were doing with non-renewable resources with materials like steel and concrete. So that's where I'm at right now. And I'm involved in a competition to design an all wood cladding system for a tall tower building that's going to be constructed in Vancouver, Canada. That's a fun competition. I don't think it's really a competition. It's a whole bunch of people. It's like a jam session. And everyone can't wait to see what everybody's going to throw up on the board as to what their solutions are. But I think these are sort of the the exciting developments. What's interesting throughout all of this is you see the absolute, what I call sort of the predominance, the importance of the facade, how it really, no matter what anyone says, is really the only thing between you and what's going on outside of your building. And all the other stuff, all of the other technologies, they are important for our comfort and convenience. But when things go bad, the only thing you got going for you is your building enclosure. So that's where I'm at now is is trying to hopefully put a whole bunch of those thoughts together. <clears throat> and interestingly, we're retorquing our curriculum in architecture to get into the 21st century at the University of Toronto. We're the oldest architecture school in Canada, and we're retorquing it for the 21st century. And so I'm trying to find out how to completely put a whole new spin on making architects appreciate the importance of facades, the importance of passive design and also looking holistically at the life cycle of buildings and understanding them as something that is not just looking good in a magazine picture because, you know, that was the day the building was uh, finished and you got all your photos done, but in fact that it's going to probably hang around for one to 200 years and people are going to have to live in it. So it's kind of a a fun time to be in, but uh, challenging. Makes me want to go back to school. So you mentioned this competition. Is this? It, it sounds very interesting. Is this an open competition? Can you talk just a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's uh, it's a Tallwoods competition, and uh, what happened there was that um, the, this this um, Delta Land Development uh, Company they want to do this uh, what they call the Earth Tower, and and so they said, well, we're going to do a big tall wood tower. I mean, but you know. We, we would like to maybe have the facade system based uh, on wood as opposed to conventional facade materials. So they, they thought they would have a competition. So Delta Land Developments came up with a bunch of money and said, uh, we, we want to uh, make an, a competition where, where the, the first round of the competition is for people to put together what we call schematic concepts for it. And then there's some really good technical performance requirements like uh, having an an effective R40 uh, enclosure, being able to make sure that, of course, that that, that you've accounted for all the three-dimensional effects of thermal bridging. So it's it's technically rigorous. And there's going to be that rigor is going to go into the evaluation criteria and scoring. And then uh, what's going to happen is from everybody that submits, they want to then go and pick three teams. Uh, after this initial submission, and they will each get a $50,000 fee so that they can actually do uh, mock-ups and testing of their concept in such a way that they can prove that, in fact, it does. Because there's certain things you can uh, simulate fairly accurately, like thermal bridging effects and thermal efficiency and so on, 
But there's things like air tightness and water leakage that you can really only do by building a full-scale mock-up and putting it into a lab. So that's mm-hmm. that's kind of cool that the three the three top as as what how how the how the work is being judged. There'll be a, a mixed team of building science experts and so on, people that aren't allowed to be part of the competition, but who are who are contracted to. Uh, review all of these. They're going to pick three people. They each get fifty thousand bucks to do a mock-up and to test it, and then they're going to pick one and they're going to go with it and give additional funding. They haven't determined how much to make sure that they flush out the entire system and that they can use it then for this thirty to forty-story Canada's Earth Tower project in Vancouver. Is it is the competition open internationally? It is. Uh, I, I I didn't see anything about it that said uh, that that it was not open to anyone. So you know, we will in our in our notes for this episode, we'll include um, a link to the to more information about the competition. Sure, but there are people that have worked out a lot of these systems in wood for other projects and probably never thinking that it could be something that could be used on such a tall building. And that's the other, the reason for the competition is to sort of, you know, shake the tree and see who's up there doing some really interesting uh, wood facade concepts because, you know, the real purpose of this competition really isn't just to have a winner per se, but it's to have the entire mass timber industry uh, win by having a whole bunch of really excellent uh, design ideas captured mm. for going forward because eventually we're thinking the future will be prefabricated wood-based facade systems. Right. That's great. Really interesting. So, you know, I, I had the, the chance to work with you, Ted. I mean, I you know, I got to familiarize myself with your work, which I was, was tremendously impressed with. And then I had the opportunity through Facade Tectonics to reach out to you and ask you to help organize our Toronto forum that we had, like uh, what twenty nineteen, I guess. Yeah, uh, and it was that was uh, that was and that was a great event and a great experience. And, and uh, you know, thank you for helping with that. So I, you know, we are collaborating again. I mean, what we're doing here right now is we are we've planned a series of podcasts, you and I, and uh, we're kicking this off uh, with a, sort of a general discussion to introduce. This series of podcasts, uh, we're looking at, in addition to this one, we're looking at four uh, or potentially five more to follow. We've definitely targeted topics, including digital workflows and offsite manufacturing, embodied carbon, durability, resilience. And we've also talked about the aspect of risk management and whether we whether we break that off into a, a, you know an additional separate podcast or whether we sort of weave that into these other following podcasts, we'll you know we'll, we'll see about that. But what we're planning on doing is we're gonna so we're gonna lay the groundwork in this in this podcast and and sort of begin to shake out these topics a little bit. And one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to figure out, but we're going to pull some other people in to join us uh, in the discussion about these topics. So, you know, let's start with uh, digital digital workflows and offsite manufacturing. When, when we initially talked about this, this was the first thing that you brought up, Ted. So why don't you talk a little bit about what you're thinking here and why this is important to you? I think one of the things that that people have concluded is that, you know, the way that we're building things uh, today, designing and building, it, it there's there's a lot of room for improvement. And one of the problems has always been uh, the fact that, you know, something as important as the 
a facade system is mostly site built today to this day or site assembled for sure and uh, so there's a whole bunch of issues in terms of quality control but also timing and and so on that that that, that are associated with that and um, the reason I came up with it as sort of the first topic is when I started looking at how mass timber buildings are done the fact that mass timber is something that is done mostly through digital fabrication the uh, cross-laminated timber panels, the whatever, the glue lamb, any, any type of structural member is all made someplace in a factory under controlled conditions and very accurately, you know, CNC routed and, and holes are cut in it and shapes are put into it. Whatever has to be done, holes are drilled and so that the connectors fit very well together. And so what you've got is this wonderful structural system that's actually got very excellent tolerances precision. And uh, the question then uh, that people asked was, well, why aren't we doing this with the facade? I mean, we're doing it with the structure and and yet the facade is really doing all of the work. In fact, it even protects the structure for the rest of the life of the building. And, and it's what separates us from inside to outside. So this whole idea then then began with, okay, so, so digital workflows and offsite manufacturing is kind of where we're going to have to go with achieving high performance facades it's people say well we could achieve them in the field and you know i'm not saying that's not true but there's very few parts of the world where the climate is good enough for long enough to be able to actually put any of these types of things together and and hope that there's not going to be some kind of moisture management issues for one and the other thing is that we are just running out of the type of workforce, I guess you would say, highly skilled workforce that that can do this. So, so we used to have uh, craftsmanship uh, in the sense that that's how people used to learn things in the trades. There were crafts, and didn't matter what you were doing, there was always craft involved. And today, I would say that that we're moving more towards what I would call digital craft. So, people are doing all of the thinking and the designing. And, and all of that intelligence is going into figuring out how to put together these components and assemble most of them, pre-assemble them, uh, fabricate them, pre-assemble them in uh, an off-site facility. And then you're just basically delivering it to the site and installing it. So, so that, that is a, a big game changer just because it, it, for one, eliminates a whole bunch of people that can't do that. Uh, that don't have the smarts and the technology and the robotics and all the other things that are required to be able to do this. So that that's one part of it. And the other part is is that that it's changing how quickly things go up. So so these these facade systems really do go up fast compared to what we see today. That's changing things for the better as far as uh, project timelines. But at the same time, it's causing a whole bunch of uh, issues that that people are are encountering, right? Well, with the you know, with respect to the facade systems, anyway, hasn't the you know the curtain wall industry been involved in offsite man, uh, manufacturing for decades now? With uh, you know, with the unitized uh, facade systems, that I think I think that that it's fair to say that they've been the leaders in this field, and I know that unitized systems are becoming more and more popular. But we're still seeing performance issues with them, in, partic- in particular things like thermal bridging issues and reductions in the efficiency. Uh, the other reality is is that for some of the high performance that we want to see, 
in our buildings, if you're talking about a primarily or mostly glazed curtain wall system, you might be able to get get it somewhere to maybe R5 or R6. But, you know, if you want to have an overall effective R value that's better than R20, you're going to have to figure a whole bunch of things out, one of them being your window-to-wall ratio. And then how do you handle the opaque elements that are insulated and how do you keep everything together so that it doesn't leak air, it doesn't leak water, it doesn't have thermal bridges, it goes together really easily in the field and so on. So these, these are these are these are big challenges and certainly the curtain wall industry has taken the lead there in trying to figure that part of it out. But we've got to get to the next to the next uh, level. The other thing is is that if you look at the material palette for the curtain wall industry, you know it's 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 primarily glass, aluminum, sealants, there's some metal connectors that connect the curtain wall to the to the structure. That that's that's your palette, but you're now getting into different types of insulations, you're getting into uh, different types of water-resistive barriers, you're talking about vapor-permeable uh, air barriers, uh, different type, depending on the applications and what, what what's happening, you're looking at a whole bunch of different types of sealants, and so we're seeing a bunch of issues come up. One, one of them, of course, is this whole idea of uh, material substitutions and, and, and how you have to be very careful uh, that, that you can't have what used to happen uh, very typically and to this day actually happens very typically where, where last-minute material substitutions are made by the general contractor in some cases or whoever the person is and not, not understanding that this material was picked because of a particular vapor permeability or a certain air tightness characteristic and that that, that is being violated by the, by the, the substituted uh, a product, and so that that's one part of it, and the other and the other part of it is the rapidity which which, uh, which these things are put together, and in some cases, people have accidentally, so to speak, gone back because they had to go look at something and opened up um, a prefabricated uh, section of, of facade to discover that the sealants weren't drying out because they were they were enclosed so fast that that they didn't dry out and and so now they're having to make sure that they have cure times that are observed and then tolerances started to also be things that were uh, not being observed as closely as they should so so what ends up happening is that and it's in one way easier is that you end up discovering that your quality assurance takes place in the plant that's producing these um prefabricated uh, facade systems. So all of this digital workflow and offsite manufacturing isn't a perfect solution unless you have somebody that's still riding herd on the, the, all of that and, and making sure that, that things are done. And, 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 you know, you can say whatever you will, but in the construction industry, everyone knows what is meant by the old phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And, and so it's just the nature of the, of you, to keep people honest. You do have to have somebody there and, and looking at it, but it's a lot easier to do in a factory setting just because things are happening in an orderly fashion. It's very chaotic on a building site. Things stop and start. They don't have regular shifts sometimes and so on. There's disruptions for weather and other factors. So it's, it's a little easier to be able to do that, but, but, but that's a huge game changer. It's, it's, it's meaning, Good things, I think, for building owners. I think it also means very good things for architects in that they can now 
actually imagine attaining uh, very high performance levels where before they, they were hoping they would attain them. And then in some cases, field testing would indicate that, you know, they had missed their mark. So I think uh, the, the whole move towards this is really a, a great thing, but it also assumes other things happening. And that's one of the, you know, appeals of mass timber. Mass timber is so precisely manufactured that when it's erected, you have buildings that are really true. And, and when you take a, a, another digitally fabricated pro- a product like a facade system and you apply it over top, the fit is good. If, if you're doing reinforced concrete frame or whatever, you have to really make sure that people understand, look, this thing that's going on, um, it, it's not made of rubber. You can't stretch it to fit. This thing, is it's got tolerances, and they're very, very tight. And the reason they're tight is because the enclosures are tight for a whole, whole bunch of good reasons, like keeping out water and air. So you'd better make sure that your structure is banging on. So there's that, uh, which which is is a little bit of a challenge in some cases. So I think we're, it, it, what it's done is, is it's, it's exposed the sort of, I call it the soft underbelly of, of, of the construction industry in that we've, we've sort of for a long time looked at the facade as something that, of course, we want it to be beautiful because it's aesthetic and pleasing and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we also would like it to be durable. And then now we want it to be, highly performative and to attain performance uh, levels that we've never seen uh, before in facade systems. And and we're not going to get there by doing it on site. So everything is driving it. And that's, that's sort of the, uh, how you say it, that's the, uh, the canary in the mine right now is how we're going to handle that. Yeah, the tolerance, the tolerance issue is interesting to me. I wasn't aware, uh, you know, I I know that the, that uh, some of the early, uh, experiments with offsite manufacturing uh, in multi-story buildings ran into problems uh, at the interface between the, you know, the the structural system that they put together and the fa- facade system. Then, you know, at the intersection between the facade system and the the structural system. Yeah, uh, and I wasn't surprised by that. I'm surprised that um, you know that the mass timber uh, is. You know that that, that you uh, recognize that the, the the tolerances are uh, aligning there between the facade system and the structural system. I wasn't aware that 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 the mass timber uh, also embraced those kind of tight tolerances. Well, this is this that's one of the beauties of it, just because of the nature and how it's made. And uh, you know, and I don't want to be unfair to industries that can also achieve high tolerances in their structural system. So, you know, steel can certainly do that. Uh, it, it has other issues when it comes, like it obviously doesn't have some of the environmental benefits of, uh, of mass timber, um, you know, but I would say reinforced concrete is extremely difficult to get to the same level of tolerance unless you're really going to uh, do tight quality control uh, when 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 they're erecting the structure, you know the formwork is is sort of banged up in place and it's more or less level. But uh, you know people that have gone and actually taken a, a, a laser measuring devices and then and then and done shots up 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 the face of of uh, the the concrete structure realize that it does swim in and out now not by a lot but enough that it becomes challenging to take a uh, prefabricated system. And to attach it. So, um, when when you're doing stuff that's field field site built, um, you, you can you know 
you can get some profile cut a little wider to, to close a gap or whatever it is that you have to do. But when you have all of these components that are pre, pre-manufactured and one has to snap into the other to go all the way around the facade, your, your, your tolerances are, are not that big anymore. So, so no matter right. what system you pick as a structure, you're going to have to do that. So like the whole thing goes all the way back to, okay, um, how well are we controlling quality of everything in construction? Everybody, like, like you start usually with a concrete foundation, even for, for mass timber buildings, that's got to start out properly and it's got to be level and true. And then you go from there. And, and so it sets up a whole different set of expectations. And I think it's a good thing because quite frankly, for the amount of money we pay for buildings, they really, uh, should come out with um, somewhere near the level of precision that we see, let's say, in automobiles. I, I know they're not going to uh, approach the the uh, precision that you get in the aerospace industry, even though a lot of buildings cost as much as a new jetliner. But um, I, I think it'd be unrealistic to expect that level of precision in our buildings. But but we should be able to get at least to the level of the automobile industry where things fit together very tightly and, and work. Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch gears, Ted, sure. and, uh, you know, jump into one of my favorite topics, which is the embodied carbon thing. Uh, you know, we, it's interesting to me how, uh, you know, this whole construction business, even though we've been doing it forever, humanity has been building buildings forever. There's still, uh, there's still so much to learn. And, you know, it's, it's like, layers of the onion, you know, and, you know, one of the layers of the onion was the, you know, was that in fact, buildings were a big part of the energy problem, you know, when, when that whole layer got peeled back in the seventies during the energy crisis and stuff. And, uh, you know, the most more, more, a more recent one is this whole embodied carbon thing. And, um, uh, you know, which is the, the energy, uh, consumed outside of the operational or the carbon generated outside of the operational cycle of the building, you know, from, uh, every, from everything from extraction to transportation, the rounds of production for products and materials, maintenance, uh, and renovation during the, the life cycle of the building. And then at the end of the building, the, well, it all depends on where, where the boundaries are drawn. Right. And that's, you know, that's one of the problems in, Assessing the the embodied carbon problem is where do you define the boundaries? Well, it's it's it is a, a big challenge. I mean, people are starting to do that. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that you know, in many ways, the uh, original. I'm thinking of it in terms of um, when, when we studied building science as grad students in the 80s. We we came to start with a body of literature that was developed after the Second World War. So, for example, you in the U.S., you had your National Institute of Building Sciences. I forget what the name was of the organization in uh, the U.K. Uh, there were other organizations in Sweden and Norway and Germany and so on that, that thought they would take a evidence-based scientific approach to building. And we in Canada had the National Research Council of, of Canada, and we had this division of building research where two giants uh, by one of them uh, Neil Hutchin and the other uh, Gus Handover, two giants of building science that took charge of this whole process and started uh, doing a bunch of basic research on things and throughout the 60s and 70s 
uh, we're able to come up with a whole bunch of discoveries that, you know, it, you're always lucky to, when people say, boy, those are major discoveries. It's like, yeah, that you always make major discoveries when you're the first person to get there. These people discovered a lot of interesting stuff. And it was it's fascinating just this, this past weekend, and it was a really nice occasion. And so for all of your listeners that, that know of, of my uh, friend and former uh, classmate at University of Toronto, uh, Joe Stebrick from Building Science Corporation, we were having an online birthday party, which uh, is something we had to do because of the pandemic. And we were talking about giants of building science, uh, the, the Canadian ones at any rate, and, and how much they, they had accomplished. And so they had sort of given us everything we needed to know to keep going, but they had probably solved about 90% of the problems. Not, not that the building industry listened to these people, mm-hmm. But they had identified issues like thermal bridging and, uh, of course, moisture management and then uh, air leakage and all those types of things. So, so you know, people um, uh, looked at all of that and said, uh, OK, so then what are we going to do when the uh, energy crisis did hit in the 70s? The, the answers were fairly obvious. In other words, we had the science to deal with it. And then we dealt with it so successfully that we're at a, at a point now where the operating energy of buildings is nothing, and 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 before it was everything. And when people used to do uh, the uh, operating energy uh, carbon, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from operating energy, that accounted for just about everything because buildings were such uh, uh, energy guzzlers. And um, now that we've got them down to the point where there's there, you know, as, as people say, you can you can heat the building with a candle. What's left? Well, what's left is the is is all of the embodied carbon, all of the embodied energy that's gone into the actual making of the building, and so now it represents, you know, so much more than what what it used to. So if you sort of look at it uh, uh, as a numerical sort of uh, relationship, you know, the the um, embodied carbon used to be like sort of. Uh, one thirtieth, or something like that, or or one fiftieth of the uh, uh, embodied carbon of, of a building, you know, and, and it's coming up to the point now where it's 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 dominating uh, the the carbon just just because the the buildings are in some cases where you're getting buildings that are uh, uh, net zero energy, you, you really don't have any energy use per se. Um, so the only thing that's left is the building materials themselves, and so. That, that we've gone full circle. So in one way, a tremendous success story. Building science has solved the energy crisis as far as buildings go. But now we have come up to discover that, yeah, well, the embodied carbon is the next issue. So that's that's how far we've come around in, in, in that sense. And, and now uh, all of the interesting discussions come about as to, so what is the best way for us to do our buildings? Yeah. I mean, you know, what I've observed is, uh, you know, in, in my career, you know, dealing with building facades, then the design of facades and trying to deal with the issues of um, energy use reduction and this kind of thing is that we've sort of been working with just half of the equation, you know, this, you know, the simplistic equation of, uh, of uh, you know, operational carbon plus embodied carbon equal whole building life cycle carbon. Uh, we have been focused on uh, just the operational part of it. And we've been solving those problems by adding to the materiality of the, of the facade system without accounting for 
the embodied carbon component of that equation. Right. Um, yeah. So it's it's no, and it's, it's true. A, it's 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 something that uh, and and you know so so as we start to develop these different ways in which and we we do have ISO standards uh, uh, for uh, how to do a whole uh, building life cycle assessment and and so. We know we know sort of where to draw the boundaries. Or there are certain conventions that we agree to. We say, well, we draw the boundaries here and there. People say, well, do you uh, in the embodied energy and and the embodied carbon of a building? Do you include the, uh, the the gasoline that was consumed by the workers driving to the site every day? And you say, well, mm-hmm. we're not going that far. That's that's almost impossible to calculate. So there's certain things that everyone agrees that we're not going to measure, although they they do represent impacts, obviously. But but what, what we try to do is look at all of the primary materials that we see on the site and and uh, that make up the building and then you go back and you look at their uh, you know environmental product declarations to see what the impacts are and and the other thing to understand is when this is done holistically uh, one of the things that comes out is the carbon footprint but there are other footprints that come out things like ecotoxins that are produced uh, and 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 any types of impacts on on for example water quality or or any of those things that relate to negative impacts on the environment or in any way deal with what they call the ecological footprint. So even uh, things that, that like are resource depletion issues or, or dealing with uh, uh, materials that we don't have a lot left of. So we have scarce materials and if they're, they're used. So, so all of this gets captured and, and it's really an interesting way of looking at, oh, so these are all of the uh, impacts associated with making this building that that we never really ever saw. We never saw that when we saw the price tag. We just saw that this sheet of plywood was so much money, and 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 this 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 bit of glass was so much, and this bag of cement was so much money, and no one ever really looked to see all of the different things that were involved to make them and how they eventually ended up getting into the building so now that we we have a way of doing that even though it's imperfect but i don't know if it'll ever be 100 percent perfect we um are starting to, to to discover some interesting relationships one of them for sure is that yes the facade they most facades uh, that we're building today are very very energy intensive uh, because people will look and say well they're mostly glass and aluminum but you have to look at those materials and realize that they are recyclable. So there's one good thing to be said there. And the other is that, uh, you know, they're, they're fairly long life materials. The, 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 they're not something that, that uh, if you want to talk about a short life material, I, I would say that uh, paint or stain on the outside of a, of a building is, is a short life material, you know, five to seven years. Most manufacturers say you should really repaint to, to um, you know, to preserve whatever it is you're trying to protect with that coating. So coatings are one thing. Uh, you know, roofing. You know, gen- generally twenty five to thirty years for a very uh, high quality roofing system. Although lots of people put on five year roofing systems, which is really kind of crazy in one way when you think about all of that embodied carbon going into a roofing system that's only going to last for so many years but but when it comes to facades they tend to hang around for a long long time we see a lot of buildings that have 100 year facades on them and we're starting to see curtain walls that are getting uh well into the 60s and 70s right 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of their age, they are so so, and I know they've required in some cases some kind of work on them. But the point I'm trying to get at is is that relationship between uh, 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 durability and the embodied carbon. It's like well, one one can sort of offset the other. If if you can amortize your ecological footprint over a long enough time, it's like that equation where you've got your numerator and your denominator. And the bigger your denominator, which is your uh, your durability, how long this thing provides good service, you're dividing the numerator by a bigger number, and there's less ecological impact than there would be if if you did this big embodied energy crunch and then and then you have to keep repeating that every year that would be like insanity so once you start getting to the plus 50 year 75 year lifespan that's 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 sort of a really good thing so the, so so durability does start to creep in to to a way of mitigating some of the things that are almost unavoidable when it comes to embodied carbon content just because we're going to want things we're going to want materials like stainless steel no matter what we're going to want it in certain applications and things like wood biological materials we haven't developed any that can take that service condition so so you're going to have to then say all right we can use these materials but we have to design it so they last right yeah so the, so you've led us right into our next uh, podcast topic which is uh, is going to focus on durability and you know the 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 thing there is yeah so aluminum, uh, a lot of, of aluminum is recycled. Yes, it uh, is. Gl- architectural glass is not recycled. You know, some of it is downcycled, but a lot of it ends up in, in landfill. Yeah. So, you know, m- you know, my question there, first of all, let me ask this question. Is, is, it, is it true that doubling the service life of a material or an assembly basically halves the embodied carbon footprint? Well, it does from a, it does from a, uh, the ecology's, uh, uh, the ecological systems carrying capacity perspective. If you look at what what you know, you're always going back to Mother Nature and extracting more stuff. And if something lasts twice as long, then you're only going half as often back right. out there. So the, the the way to look at that is is it's like having your own wood lot a wood lot on 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 a piece of property. So if you've got a big uh, farm. And you've got a big woodlot, and that's what you're getting for for your firewood from. You know that if you can make your firewood last twice as long, because you've got you know let's say a, a way more efficient way of heating, uh, or or the building just requires less energy, that then you're going to have to go and cut down fewer trees. I mean that's that that's that's just the way nature works in terms of what what we're right. we're, we're trying to get out of it. So that that part of the math is is uh, is pretty easy, but. The thing to realize is that different things have different time constants. So right. certain things that we have to watch for. So sometimes people say, well, I'm really worried about the embodied carbon issue. And and, and, and I agree that carbon is really important because we're, we're looking at climate change and wanting to, to, to mitigate against that as best as we can. So that's a major consideration. But there's other things when when they don't work out so well when we're doing things like, for example, certain forms of water pollution that result from the manufacturing of building materials or, or putting bad things into landfills and then they leach out and get into, let's say, um, 
water uh, systems, uh, you know, so so right. aquifers and stuff like that. I mean, these things are in the, in the some of them are in the range of hundreds to thousands of years before they can be cleaned up. So so you know, if you contaminate them, they stay contaminated for a long time. Lake Michigan has uh, the Sci- Great Lake scientists a few years back said has a, a, a change rate of uh, once in uh, 150 years. So the water in Lake Michigan gets changed once every 150 years. If you put stuff into that body of water that's not so good, it won't completely get out of the system for 150 years. So you really got to watch what you're going to put in there. Um, right. There's so other things are really fast. That's you know people say, well, how about stuff like uh, that's why they're they're with for example the engineered wood products. They're trying to get tree species that that don't have to grow for a long time. They're basically sort of you know five six years of growth, and you harvest the thing and you shred it or chip it or do what you have to do, and next thing you know, you've got this this advanced engineered wood product, uh, and you can sort of treat it almost like a crop instead of having to really get into all of the ecological considerations of forests which are which are much more complex so so the durability issue is is, is like that we we have to uh, look, look, look at durability um, and how long things last and 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 we always have to balance that against things like their embodied car- carbon and then the other ecological impacts and and so that's why it's not a straightforward process so when people say well, if you if you could, what would you uh, make buildings out of? And I guess, you know, you, you would say, well, if you're assuming that we could get all identical performance, in other words, fire safety and all that kind of stuff, if you could get the same level of performance, of course, you would love to make buildings out of completely renewable materials. You would love mm-hmm. to be able to do that. But, but there's so many things that we require that that's just not going to happen so so we got to learn how to stretch this stuff out and so uh so in one way and it's really interesting because we were going through this this covid 19 uh we're talking about a different way of flattening the curve the environmental curve we we what we don't want is big spikes in demand on the ecosystem for our for our building activities and material extractions that push things past the threshold where we can't deal with them anymore. But what we want to do is we want to keep all of that within a certain carrying capacity of our ecosystem. And and that that's going to require, I think, a lot of, of smart thinking and, and some very interesting design considerations. But I guess at the end of the day, it's also going to mean that we're going to have to get really good at reusing building materials as well and also making over buildings. So I, I still think that the real future of the building industry is to try to make the most of the, out of the buildings we already have. And, right. uh, and, 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 and to, to, you know, so, so the, the big challenge in the future, and I think it'll be very interesting. And I think you're seeing it now with things like teleworking, people are saying, do you really have to, you, you have to say to your corporate client, do you really have to build another big office tower for your, for your, uh, for your enterprise? Do you think there's not a way of distributing this within the existing building stock? Because so in other words, I think architects especially have to be able to offer lateral thinking solutions to their clients. The, 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 the answer can't always be, 
uh, I'm going to give you a new building. I mean, like they say, you know, if you have a limited uh, uh, tool chest, if the if the only thing you have in your tool chest is 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 a hammer, then everything starts to look like a nail. And so for right. architects, it's always I want to do a new building. And you look and you go, well, wait a second, you could be helping people solve some of their issues by. Recrafting part of the buildings they already have, uh, finding out other ways of maybe working with people to to uh, telework for three out of five days a week or whatever it takes, and 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 avoid the need to go and and put all of that embodied energy into a building. So so I think sometimes it, the 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 sort of reflex that we usually have, and all of us involved in the building industry can't help it because you know we love buildings and we love building buildings. But at the same time, sometimes we just have to say, you know what, we we gotta not not build a building. We gotta we gotta refashion what we have and make it work in a more efficient way. Yeah, the greenest building is the unbuilt building. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is part of it. The other thing is is that even the intelligence of the design, like like some buildings. I mean, I'm shocked at this number, but I've been told this by colleagues. They say it's amazing how that some buildings. Uh, especially office buildings and certain types of commercial buildings, that their churn rates are so high and they keep changing stuff around and they keep ripping out uh, metal stud partitions and putting in drywall and ripping out perfectly good flooring to put in another type of flooring just because it's a different tenant that wants a different look and all of this type of stuff that that within 25 to 30 years, what they call the, the recurring uh, uh, embodied energy is is approaching the initial embodied energy of the building. So that there's buildings that have, the, so so they're designed in such a way that, that that it's almost as if everything in them goes obsolete from a style stylistic point of view. And so this this business of obsolescence is is always something that you've got to balance against. The the other thing is this business of differential durability where we're replacing things because the weak link in the chain broke and then you have to replace the whole chain and you go like why didn't we harmonize the durability of all the components why didn't we design things to be a little more loose fit and flexible and adaptive why do we have to rip everything out and put everything in and and all this stuff ends up in landfills and really doesn't make make for a good environmental reputation for the building industry um so I think durability again. It it's so interconnected, whether we like it or not, with with uh, embodied carbon. And then if you take that back to what we talked about with digital workflows, is that we want to really make sure that we put things together, assemble things together as well as possible, so that we do get the durability and the performance that we want, and that that we can do it using materials that have the best sort of embodied carbon profile. And so so we, we, we can't disconnect them all. And I think that's one of the reasons that design education is becoming more complicated because in the past, we, we never thought of these issues. We just assumed that it was going to be a brick or a block or, or some reinforced concrete. Or, like no one ever questioned any of that. It was just a given. And uh, now... Now that we're bumping against the uh, 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 the edge of the the envelope, the sustainability envelope, we're realizing there are limits to growth, and we do have to watch what we do. And so, what, what's going to make for you know intelligent decision making? And 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 that that means we have to educate our, our 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 design professionals to start to consider these things. And and that's that makes it it 
I, I would say a lot more challenging than it was when I first started teaching 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, the, the education, the education component is both uh, more challenging and more important, critically important now. I think we're going to have to get used to the fact that you just don't stop learning. But for someone like myself, having been an academic and a practitioner and a researcher, that seems to be something that you just goes with the territory. But I'm talking to people who are looking at specs, for example, uh, and they look and they go, you know, I'm getting specs from consultants for materials that stopped being manufactured 30 years ago, and they're still in their specs. So some people have never updated. Like it's people, people are always amazed at how, I wouldn't say backwards, but how, <laughs> how, how, much of the the uh, building industry, uh, people are just running so fast to stay ahead of the curve that they don't have the time or the inclination to keep up with where the world's at. So wherever they, when they got into whatever it is they're doing, if that's how they did things, let's say thirty years ago, that, that's the way they're still doing them today. Yeah, and, you know, and but we wouldn't accept that from anybody else. Like any other profession, you would look and you'd go to your medical practitioner and say, "Well, I hope you're, you're <laughs> recommending the, thera- the therapies that have been developed in in 2019, 2020. You're not looking at stuff from the 1950s here, right? And and that would be the expectation. Uh, and 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 for some reason, in the construction industry. There, there's still a large part of the uh, of the market segment that's operating really, uh, I would say, close to 50 years ago. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The these these concepts that you that you mentioned. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. I mean, there is so much to talk about, and these concepts that you mentioned of di- differential durability and harmonizing the the uh, the components of an assembly in terms of uh, their durability attributes and, you know, this kind of thing. I ran into these, you introduced me to these things, you know, in, in the literature, through the literature, really interesting stuff. And we're going to peel back, uh, you know, more, uh, on that stuff in the, in the podcast that we do focused on durability, but you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the virus we're, we're, uh, we're in the midst of, um, the pandemic and were sequestered in our home offices and, you know, all, all, uh, you know, becoming experts in zoom and and these other podcast platforms and this kind of thing. And, you know, you are studying now, uh, you're, you're deeply involved in this aspect, this consideration of resilience. And and I want to, I want to ask you about that. That's one one of the things that we're going to focus on also in, in an individual podcast. And there's a lot to talk about there. And resilience is usually, you know, oftentimes at least talked about in terms of uh, shocks and stresses. And we primarily focus on just like, like, you know, in the, you know, in the uh, dialogue, we focus, we focus so much on energy and now carbon. And as you rightly point out, there are other aspects of this thing which need to be considered like water for example you know water is absolutely critical and if we've got our eye just on the carbon ball and we run out of water we're we're in deep shit right so uh so you know with respect to this this resilience thing it comes you know you know we usually talk about in terms of shocks you know immediate impacts hurricane impact damage you know to the facade system you got windborne debris and all that kind of stuff what about the long-term stresses 
that are induced by a pandemic like this. I mean, isn't this isn't this also a resilience consideration? I mean, how how it, what, what do you think about that? How does that manifest in the resilience dialogue? Well, well, I, I think one of the things that's starting to happen, and, and I don't know what it's like where you're at, but I know that here in Toronto, as you know, in the last 20 years, Toronto's probably been one of the busiest uh, cities in terms of the uh, construction of high-rise uh, residential buildings. We have these condominium apartment buildings that are going up like mushrooms, really. Uh, there's cranes everywhere. You look in the horizon, and there's just more and more of them coming online. Um, and, and they're an example of something that really they, these buildings have very poor resilience. And what I mean by that is there was a uh, – it was August of uh, last year, I believe, and it was really hot out. So we're talking about temperatures that are in the high 80s, low 90s, uh, which which doesn't happen very often in Toronto, but does happen. And uh, there was a um, – I guess it was a transformer station that was in a vault underground. Something happened. It shorted out. It, it blew. So um, a whole district uh, that it served of these new condominium towers, uh, they got knocked out uh, and didn't have any electricity supply. What was amazing was is that those buildings, within 45 minutes, they became uninhabitable. The uh, sun was baking them. People were, were, were saying that they were getting, uh, you know, like 110, 120 degree Fahrenheit temperatures in their in their suites, in the west facing wow. suites, because they had no air conditioning and they have an R2 enclosure and there's no shading devices and so and and the openings aren't big enough for any meaningful kind of natural ventilation. So there's an example of of you you build a whole bunch of this stuff. This one thing happens, and people just had to evacuate, and they had to walk out of their buildings. They didn't even have enough emergency power to run the elevator. So you're, you're talking about people coming down 30 floors, down the fire stairs, just just to get out of their where they're where they're at because it's too hot, and uh, getting out to ground level and, and walking. Fortunately, not very far uh, to beyond the boundary of where that electrical system uh, had failed and so they got to places that did have air conditioning I'm sure everybody that could probably got themselves to an air conditioned bar and had a beer but the thing is we we, <laughs> we, we that's one example um, now people that have stayed in those buildings through the through the pandemic said it's it's not much better I mean okay they they they've got their heating that that, that was good because uh, it was a bit cool in Toronto uh, the natural ventilation not so great. Uh, the balconies, uh, you really can't do much on the balconies. They're sort of token balconies. They're so small. So people are looking at this high density and they're going, it's, it's bad for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, besides the fact that it stresses our infrastructure because, you know, that many toilets flushing in the morning. I mean, they had to make pipes in the ground a lot bigger to take all of that waste. And there's people waiting in line at the top of the stairs that lead into subways because they can't get into the subway platform because literally from the platform all the way up to the street, people are in line because of the congestion, too high a density. So we're starting to discover things that are not really related so much to the building design, although in a way they are because the typology is a sort of a, a point tower type of housing project. But we're also realizing that all of this stuff, uh, how do you do safe distancing in an elevator i mean that's right, right? i right. mean so and then so how big should elevators be and what's what's the protocols and people are discovering stuff like uh 
gee, I, I, um, I guess if I can smell the guy's cigar smoke in the suite below me, then I guess his air is getting into my uh, unit. And, uh, right. you know, people have asked me that question. They said, well, what do you think of that? And I said, well, technically, I said, if, if the code was being properly enforced, you're not supposed to have smoke movement in between units. That's if the fire code has been properly enforced and all of those penetrations uh, should be sealed. And they're not, obviously. And and there are companies that go and do this afterwards, by the way, because it's like I was talking to a, a litigation lawyer that's involved with a lot of these condo condominium type dis- disputes uh, that uh, noise and odors are the two common things that people get upset about. Um, and they're in close proximity. And, and like I said, it hasn't been really pleasant lately because people are also stressed out because of this this covid thing and uh so the shut-ins are really having a hard go of it and and they did a whole bunch of things that really probably were not very smart things to do uh in in terms of building design if if you look back at it so so whether that'll change things or not i don't know but i do know that from a resilience point of view we have we have a lot of the the new buildings are, are really not that resilient and 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 often and it's amazing some of the old stuff works out to be better and 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 probably just because it had so much thermal mass that at least something happened in terms of being able to retain the heat even though there wasn't much insulation um but there's other issues too it's it's everything from we don't have a lot of this i don't know what it's like in the states but i have seen footage and and images of of windborne debris and what it does to facades and i'm looking at you know so how fast can you change out those glazing units some of these some of these glazing systems are really strange looking pieces of glass they're strange shapes of i mean that's not something you will get at the hardware store right the next day right and 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 then and then there's the whole issue of matching it like uh so what was the solar hurricane coefficient exactly, and what was the coating? Because if we don't match it, when you look at this glass from a distance, it won't look the same as the pane beside it, and all those types of things. And I think yeah, it's it's important that it's important that may not be an issue. You're going to just want to get glass in there, you know. So you're well, going to end gonna up start out with plywood, right? Because that's the one yeah, thing you right, can right. buy, and and hopefully the piece of glass isn't bigger than a sheet of plywood, in which case you're sort of stuck. Uh, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to connect together two pieces of plywood, jam them into the frame somehow, and put a whole bunch of tape or whatever you're gonna do until until that that replacement unit comes. And and the thing is, is that if everybody is calling for a replacement unit in a city, you know, I'm trying to think of cities that are like big places, like we're talking millions of people and all kinds of buildings, uh, you know. Uh, What's the capacity of, of New York City, industry? Miami? You know, a lot, yeah, a lot of cities, a lot yeah, of coastal a lot of cities. cities. What's the what's the capacity to crank out replacement glazing units? Like you know, and no one ever. It's funny, no one ever thinks of these things. I mean, we saw with the what the pandemic showed us was, hey, you know what? Our healthcare system has limits. There's only so many intensive care units. Well, it's the same thing. Think of think of what the intensive care unit equivalent is for a building. What is the ability of the services that we have to respond to those building uh, events, those, those extreme events. And I think now we have to sit back and that's why resilience is so big. And the thing about resilience is that it really, again, so much of it is mediated across the, uh, the, the facade system. You know, uh, the resilience issue is, has, has almost nothing to do with the structure unless it's an earthquake, in which case that's a 
that's a, that's a totally different ballgame. But even then, right. uh, the way the way our modern buildings are designed, they usually can take quite a bit of an earthquake. But uh, after that, then you sort of look and you say, well, yeah, but the facade is <laughs> so uh, distorted that we, we sort of do have to do a makeover on it if, if, if we want it to work the way it used to work before. And, and so I, I think given that, with climate change and all of these types of events that we're seeing, and in some cases, even events that pertain not, well, they're man-made events like terrorism and people blowing stuff up. Um, I think we're starting to see maybe the beginning of, okay, so maybe punched windows are beautiful yeah. for a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe. <laughs> a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. And maybe, and that, maybe flat orthogonal surfaces are you know, desirable for a whole lot of reasons, you know, well, I mean, yeah. what, one of the dominant trends in, in, in architecture today, that's easy to see is this geometric complexity, escalating geometric complexity that's been amplified, you know, through these, you know, digital technologies that, uh, you know, have come online. And, you know, you can look at it as being diametrically opposed to, you know, a lot of the resilience and sustainability uh, measures that uh, you know that come to mind when when you contemplate these things. You know, like you said, I mean, we're delivering these facade systems through very convoluted supply chains, right? right. And and that's going to make that you know that uh, the repair problems that you're talking about extremely difficult to manage. I mean, the glass is coming from all over the place. You know, I mean, it's coming in from well, all different kinds of shapes. I think you one know, of the things, they- we, yeah, and and I mean, and the same thing. Like, look at what happened with the. Uh, well, it happened to to us in North America. It happened to people in Europe. People discovered that when it came to the uh, personal protective equipment uh, that the healthcare workers were using in this fight against the COVID nineteen, they discovered that hey, most of our personal protective equipment is manufactured in China. And and they they shut down all their manufacturing facilities because they wanted everyone to be distanced from each other so they could control the outbreak that they had there. So mm-hmm. how did we ever get to the point where we're dependent on these international convoluted supply chains? And you know, for personal protective equipment, well, the same thing could be said about what are we doing about having local supply? You know, of these materials that we built. Like I think that that it's insane to be importing stuff that comes, you know, three quarters of the way around the world to get to us. Um, and then when something bad happens and you need to get a replacement piece, you're at the mercy of somebody that, that they might be even in a worse position than you are and not able to help you even if they wanted to help you. So so I'm just looking at this and thinking we, we never used to be that way. Like if you think of, you know, what life was like in North America if you went back, let's say 150 years ago, I think 150 years ago would be a safe, a safe bet. You know, I would say that probably like 99.9% of all the building materials were local North American building materials that probably came from not that far away from where you were building. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it was yeah. just, that's the way you did it. And, uh, you know, and, and, um, I mean, if you think about it, uh, and, and this happened during the time of the Civil War, uh, okay, so finally they got into, and mind you, they were really durable, but uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the cast iron facades that were done in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and those cast iron facades, you know, they, they were set up, uh, you know, in foundries that were mostly in the American Northeast, 
mind you, most of those buildings went up in the American Northeast. I don't see too many cast iron facades that were manufactured in the American Northeast that ended up in the Southwest just because in those days people said it's crazy to ship something so far for one and and we'll 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 do something local just because it's more affordable and if we need a replacement we've got it so i think people had so much more common sense in those days because they sensed their vulnerabilities i think we got so globalized that we thought oh you know what the heck i'll just put it on a plane you know fedex will have it here tomorrow well (laughs) but sometimes these things aren't working because of exactly what we're going through now which is a pandemic and so i think when it comes to buildings this resilience issue has a whole bunch of layers to it as well. And it ha- and we have to start to rethink, okay, so how really do we want to do this? And, and I think that was one of the appeals of mass timber for, for North Americans is we happen to have big forests and we discover that we can uh, supply a lot of our building needs if we can figure out how to engineer wood and, and to put together systems that use wood. Um, and, and, and then the other thing is we're not beholden to people in other parts of the world for, for our, our, uh, building materials. Right. Right. Well, hopefully COVID-19 has taught us some very important lessons. We'll see what happens as we tail out of this thing. But let me yeah. ask you, Ted, um, you are, I think, uniquely positioned to, um, to answer this question. Uh, you, you know, uh, polish up your crystal ball here and uh you know given all these you know broad-based widespread you know considerations that you know that 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 we've gone through here what do you see coming i mean what what's going to happen here i mean what are facade systems going to look like 10 years from now do they bear any resemblance to what we have now are we going to be able to get there through incremental change or is there some radical disruptive uh change on the horizon what are you what are you feeling i i don't see like a radical disruptive chain uh change beyond what we've discussed today like i think what everything that we've talked about today those forces are in play and they're happening i think it's i think it's going to be digital workflows and offset manufacturing that's going to have a lot to do with it. A lot of our decisions about materials are going to be based on embodied carbon. We're going to be still interested very much in durability and resilience. I think what will happen in facades is people are going to look at them and say, um, first of all, what level of performance are we getting out of the facade? And, and people are going to want to have a very protective facade. I think things like pandemics tend to make people more isolationist, that they want to have greater security, that they might not be as daring. So I think that's that's part of what's going to happen. So people will want higher performance. They're going to want a type of reliability that comes from knowing that, uh, well, if it's if it's um, if my glazing system is made up of you know not such big pieces of glass and so many pieces of glass, then I can get them changed out if something bad happens. Um, and that would be good. So maybe punched windows are better than uh, curtain walls. And, and so I think that, that, that part in terms of facades is, is, is going to be more along the lines of thinking. But I think it's also going to come about because of building form. So I think most people that had bad experiences in tall buildings are not going to be advocates for living in tall buildings. I think, I think there was a lot to be said for the, the echistics movement uh, that was uh, done by the Greek architect Doxiadis. Uh, a, a little over half a century ago, but his group was studying basically what people felt comfortable living in, and they concluded that we we really don't feel normal in buildings that are taller than than 
trees. Like we came from the trees. Trees only grow so high, about eight stories. And uh, after that, you know, we're not really comfortable. I mean, I know it's really cool to have a nice place, you know, 30, 40 floors up, maybe a penthouse suite if you've really hit it big. Uh, But at the same time, when bad things happen, you realize, how am I going to get out of this uh, building? And uh, you're going to look at it and say, gee, I don't know. Um, You know, after 9-11, I don't know how many people felt comfortable going back into tall office buildings. Uh, They did. They had to. That's where they worked. But, I mean, if you ask them, well, what do you think now? You feel vulnerable. I'm sure that if you had done the survey, they would say, yes, I do feel a heck of a lot more vulnerable. And I wish I was in a four- to six-story building where just a very few flights of stairs and I'm out the building uh, under my own power. I don't have to, to, uh, you know, go down whatever it is, 50, 60, 80 floors. So, I think that that's going to change. I, I think people are going to are going to want uh, to live a little differently. I think people are going to want to make sure they have access to the uh, to what architecture has always been about, which is access to light and air. But people still want to be able to see daylight and have views, and they want to be able to have to get the fresh air. They don't they don't want it coming through a duct. Uh, so they want operable windows, and and a lot of buildings don't have that. So I think we're going to start to see. A change in the thinking that way, and and th- those buildings will will be the ones that that will be more highly valued. People will say, "Yeah, well, I like this building because I can open a window, and uh, I, I have a view, and I, I have daylight, and, uh, and and you know what? I, I'm, I'm it might be a multi-unit residential building, but I'm I'm on the fourth or the fifth floor, whatever it is, maybe no more than six. Uh, I'd say eight is sort of an outer limit, and that and that's it. Most of Europe was was done that way, um, and if you saw any of the footage out of Italy, where of course, which was devastated by the pandemic, but the people were able to get out onto what I call really beautiful and large, generous balcony spaces. Mm-hmm. That's something we that we we've given up on in North America, and I just think that one of the things we're going to start to see is we're going to start to see more enclosed balcony spaces that that where the glass shutters open and close so you can have an open balcony or a closed balcony but i think a lot of people really wish they had something like that that were shut in uh during the periods of isolation so um how long will the memories last it's hard to say you know people forgot about sars within about two years after it was over right right. so i don't know i don't know how much that registers i don't know how this one's going to go down in terms of uh how it's going to resonate with with the people who will become the next uh, generation of of people buying real estate and, and all that kind of stuff, which which is not our generation, but it's the upcoming generation. I don't know. I don't know how much of it's going to stick, but it it certainly makes uh, a lot of people think about things that they didn't think about before, and I think it's going to be reflected to some extent in in, in uh, building design, and then that eventually will be reflected in the facade design. So. Hopefully, we uh, we get more things right than we get wrong. Yep. The, the, the last thing I was going to mention, and 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 because I'm really looking forward to having these other podcasts, because it's really fun to talk to some of the people that we're going to line up and get their perspectives, but also just to really dig in deeper on some of these uh, issues. I think one of the things that that these topics, when you when you take all these topics and you connect them together so to speak, when you, when you connect all the dots between them, you do end up in this, this business of what 
what we refer to as risk management, but also asset valuation. So as these different things become evident to people and these different vulnerabilities and carbon footprints and all that kind of stuff, and, and as, as people have to report more their energy uses and their carbon footprints and, and things that are happening in jurisdictions all over the place, it starts to then uh, become an issue for certain people, certainly for people who hold uh, a lot of real estate, uh, big portfolios. They don't want to be stuck with buildings that represent an investment risk because they become devalued because they don't have good resilience, good durability. They have a bad rap in terms of embodied carbon and so on, right? Yeah. So so, so in the end, it's funny, but it's all the stuff we've been talking about is about, you know, human comfort and safety and security and what's good for the environment. But inevitably, it, it all eventually does come back to you know, economics, people turn around, they go, well, if, if certain things just become really uncool, that means I've had a huge devaluation in my portfolio. So I'm going to want to do something. Either I'm going to get rid of these buildings, try to dump the ones that are not good performers, or I'm going to have to do something to, you know, rehabilitate these buildings so that they do end up having good performance and, and, and hit these metrics in, in, in a way. That, that is more acceptable and, and maintains their value. So in one way, it's kind of interesting because a lot of times I've had people say things like, well, I don't know if in a capitalist economy that this will ever really happen. But I, I always tell people it's interesting how in the end things do come down to market forces. And those market forces in this case are driven by considerations for the environment and climate change and a whole bunch of things, but still ends up being a monetary pressure that's put on people to to do the right thing, so to speak. So so it, it, it takes a while. It may not be as, as fast as it should be as a process, but I'm I'm hearing already from several of uh, several of the large real estate developers uh, and property holders in Canada that they are uh, starting on a process of reevaluating all of their portfolios for exactly this reason because they're saying. Um, Pension funds don't want to invest in us because they don't like the uh, the carbon footprint of our buildings. So imagine that. I mean, yeah, that's, imagine that's, that. I mean, this is the, you know what you're talking about is is some very important messaging that needs to be uh, delivered to the building owners. You know, as a group, it's it's a powerful lever. Well, the thing is, is that that for the first time they're actually going to people and saying, well, how, how do we uh, how do we address these issues? And so I have colleagues of mine that are involved in large architectural practices here in Toronto who said only in the last couple of years are people actually coming, and they're not coming and saying, I'm doing this because I feel guilty about how much greenhouse gases my, my building stock emits. That's not the reason they're doing it. They're looking at it and they're saying, we don't like the 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 uh, the economic risk that 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 uh, and the, the potential downside that we're going to be facing because of a devaluation of our assets because of how they're perceived and and uh, so we're not going to be able to uh, eventually what's going to happen is people are not going to lease our space they're going to go to another building because it's got a better rep uh, than 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 their building and. Um, 
that means they're going to have to uh, lower their their uh, the, the, what they're charging per square foot of, of, of space, and that means that they're going to be losing money. And and so so it's interesting that it's come to that. But it, it, it took longer than I had thought it would. But I, somehow most of us, I think, suspected that eventually, if the consciousness was raised to a level where people understood these connections that that eventually it would it would end up in the bottom line and i think we're just starting to see that and i think the one thing about the the pandemic is that it's pushing us more towards a realization that there's these other things that we can't control that we should start looking at that maybe in the past we didn't so in that sense it's it's been a um it's been a good wake-up call yeah it's been a painful wake-up call, but, it, uh, you know, ultimately we can only hope it's a good wake-up call. I'm hoping it is. I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I'm, I'm a believer in the human spirit. I think that, uh, you know, and I think for people like us who live in democracies, I think at the end of the day, we eventually come around to to doing the right thing. Uh, and we do it for the right reasons. It just, it just, it takes time. And that, and that's the nature of the world we live in. But, but, uh, I do think I do think uh, there is an evolution and a spiraling upward of, of what, what we're aspiring to do. So, so like I said, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of the series uh, of discussions we're going to have because it'd be nice to get into these in a deep way. Because I think what people want now to know is they say, well, if all of this stuff is important to me, what matters is and what I try to teach my students is I said, so what are you going to do about it now? In other words. How do you actually operationalize these concepts so that they become part of how you do business? Right. I think that's exactly. what really matters at the end of the day. It's it, yeah. awareness. It's nice to have awareness of these issues. But at the end of the day, you say, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, how, how, how am I going to deal with all of the issues? Because the opportunities are there, but there's also challenges and you have to overcome them if you want to capitalize on the opportunities. And I think... That's that's going to be the next round that we're going to go through. Uh, I would say that that's going for for my field, the building science field. I would say the next one to two decades is going to be on bringing the building industry, which has not really fundamentally changed for probably a couple of millennia. <laughs> Maybe I'm being too cruel. Well, it certainly hasn't changed for a couple of centuries since the industrial yeah. revolution. This is yep. the we, we're. We have a chance now in the next one to two decades of bringing it into the 21st century. So I think, I think that's hugely exciting. I'm excited by it. Um, I hope I live long enough that I can see that transformation take place. But, but as I said, I think at, in, in the future podcast, it'd be, it'd be fun talking to people about, okay, so what do you think are the practical implications of this on, on a day-to-day business uh, basis? Going forward, whether whether you know uh, whether you're a constructor or, or or a building owner or or an architect, how how do, how do you see all that piecing together? Yeah, well, you know, we share the same mission with the the Facade Tectonics Institute, and uh, you know, it's it's um, it's going to be interesting to do this going forward. I've got I, you're you're kind of in trouble because you've. Uh, You've sort of tabled in my mind probably a half a dozen new topics, <laughs> so I, we may be uh, we may be building more of a series of podcasts than we anticipated. But you know, we'll we'll talk about that. 
Uh, right now, I want to bring this uh, to an end, Ted, and I want okay. to thank you so much for, you know, for participating, uh, you know, for taking the time to do this. It's been fascinating, really interesting, um, and I look forward to doing more of it. We're going to do a, a lot more of it. So thanks, Ted. Thanks. And, we'll uh, talk to you soon. And the rest of you listeners, I want to remind you that we are going to have more podcasts coming up. Ted and I are going to be co-hosting. Uh, we'd love to hear from you regarding what you thought about today, what what you disagree with, what you agree with, what you like, what you didn't like, what we missed. I'm sure there's uh, many things we overlooked. There's so much to talk about. And also other topics, right? Other topics that you, you, you would like to hear about and who you would like to hear from who you would like to uh, have speaking to those topics because Ted and I plan to invite other people, other thought leaders from the industry uh, that can speak to these topics. So this is the Skins Podcast brought to you by the Facade Tectonics Institute. Thank you for being with us. Look forward to talking with you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>